0: Welcome to the fourth installment of Down the Hatch. This Down the Hatch podcast is the first in a series on the topic of advocacy. What is advocacy? Advocacy is publicly supporting or recommending a cause or policy. So we contacted Dr. Michael Oken, a neurologist, given the prevalence of neurogenic dysphagia in speech-language pathology clinical practice. Dr. Oken is the chair of the Department of Neurology at the University of Florida and the co-director of the Movement Disorder Center. In this podcast, Alicia and I, of course, sprinkle in our own asides and discussion along the way because we can't help ourselves. Thank you for being willing to um, sit down and talk with Alicia and I about basically swallowing clinicians and our obsession with swallowing. We wanted to ask you a question without giving you any information. How prepared do you think or knowledgeable are neurologists about swallowing?
1: Yeah, so we, we actually have had quite an experience in working with community neurologists, neurologists who are in training. Um, you know... We, Junior people just out of training, mid level and senior, and across the board, I would say I'm fairly disappointed in the level of education that that um, that we provide, uh, both for the usefulness of how to interface with speech language pathologists and how to do dysphagia and swallow evaluations, the uh, attention to detail and understanding how to communicate with. Uh, a good speech-language pathologist, and get the right studies at the right time to help patients, it oftentimes surprises me that most neurologists don't ask their patients to cough, You know, particularly elderly patients with degenerative diseases. I've spent mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. career dealing with degenerative diseases, mm-hmm. and there's one thing we can't escape. It's age and degeneration, right? <laughs> All of our brains get smaller, and we are going to end up with lots of neurological disability, and it's just something that we can't... Um, prevent, also picking up on things like coughing during meals or mm-hmm. during meal times, And so we're not taught at all in medical school, in neurology residency, or in fellowship about the right questions to ask for people that might have cough dysfunction or swallowing dysfunction, nor are we taught the importance of, you know, what screening studies can do and how they can prevent aspiration, aspiration pneumonia, which is a leading cause of death and multiple neurological maladies. And uh, it's amazing that we don't pay attention to it. And So so
0: the significance is there, and it's well understood that it's an important problem, mm-hmm. but the training is not there in terms of how do we bridge the gap between what we know is a problem and actually helping to address it.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a big barrier, in, and, and there's a gap. And I think the gap comes with... Uh, what happens when you practice medicine for a while and you have patients who aspirate and then you lose them and you realize that you should have Mm -hmm. done something different or you're just assuming there's nothing you could have done for you know this individual or this group of patients and so I think Mm -hmm. it's humbling I think we become wiser as we practice medicine each day and I think one of the areas that we can improve the most on is the, the evaluation of swallow the follow-up of it, and paying attention to it, and being, you know, uh, prepared and and preemptive. So preemptively striking on people and checking, swallowing on people who are in at-risk groups. And I just don't feel like across the board, neurologists are in tune with with patients and who are the at-risk populations that they should be worried about.
0: So clearly, you've highlighted that neurologists, not a whole lot of training. Maybe one lecture... So I'm going to flip the script a little bit and ask you how much, how prepared do you think SLPs are? Or what percentage of their curriculum would you say is dedicated to swallowing, in your opinion?
1: So it's a, it's a good question. I've never really thought about it. I, I will tell you that most people um, have the bias to be thinking about uh, speech-language pathologist with the focus on speech. And I think part of that comes from the pediatric you know, world and where we first meet speech-language pathologists, which are oftentimes in the elementary schools and in the school systems and when our kids have speech problems, or when I met a speech pathologist when I had a speech problem when I was in school. And so we think of you, just our bias is to think of you as speech, but to not
0: think of,
1: of, uh, of, of the expertise that you bring with swallowing but, um, but I think that we all would widely assume that you have an educational program that, you know, 30%, 40% of your program is going to be dedicated to, to, to swallow.
0: Well, I have some fun stats for you. What you may not know is that while 41 to maybe 80% of SLPs report in healthcare settings that what they do most of the big nine that we're responsible for, nine topic areas, one of swallowing, is swallowing. So the vast majority of what we do when we get into healthcare setting is swallowing. But we, at the very most, will have one course on swallowing. And in some programs, I think University of Iowa is one of them, where they're a leading program, they have swallowing only as an elective. I tell my dysphagia class here at UF, the first day I told them, When you guys are done here, when you go to your first clinical placement, besides the speech pathologist who's been there before you, you will know more about swallowing than anybody else in that facility. And the gasps around the room, like, (gasps) what, how is that possible? Certainly the doctors know, certainly the nurses know, and if the answer is no, actually, you will know more than them because you've had a whole semester of it, and it's required here at UF, unlike other universities.
2: And that's what you get is one course. That's it. And, and now make saw. sure you
0: don't mess up and recommend a peg for the wrong guy.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. It's a shocking statistic and um, and one that should, you know, get our attention and maybe call us to action because, mm-hmm. you know, if you look across and, you know, I've spent my career dealing with, you know, mainly an elderly population, mm-hmm. but also with, um, with younger patients with neurological dysfunction, mm-hmm. dysphagia and swallowing difficulties you know to to us are are like the heart attacks and the pulmonary embolisms that we learn about when we're interns and you mm-hmm. know so you you learn when you're an intern and you're on call for the first time at night you kind of really fast want to come <laughs> up to speed on the things that are going to kill your patients yeah, you know, like well you're the one in the hospital holding the call yeah. pager or the code pager so right. you learn about heart attacks you learn about um, you learn about pulmonary emboli and things that you you know you learn how to resuscitate someone, but it turns out when you're dealing with a, a predominantly outpatient population of patients and managing them, you know the 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 big red flag of what's going to get them in trouble is swallowing mm-hmm. dysfunction yet yeah, we yeah. we pay little um, attention to it except in the literature when we go back through. Medicare and Medicaid and payer systems and look at swallowing. There's plenty of studies that look at that, but the actual call to action and what we do for screening cough and swallow and um, and the integrity of that system is is, uh, is very poor. We also don't teach our practitioners to ask the right history questions to elicit the knowledge that maybe there's something going on with the patients. Yeah. So it's, it's an issue and one that um, I think we're going to have to change the way that we teach the physical exam and what's important, particularly in different age populations. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, one thing you said is that you show up, you're a brand new doctor, and you have to keep this patient alive, but the nurses, they certainly know how to help you keep the patient alive, right? Because often the nurses have been there seeing this patient day and night, and so if you're a brand new resident, like, fumbling with equipment, they can probably help you. Our issue is that we know the most, but we also know <laughs> very little. So it sounds like we have not done the best job of educating the healthcare system about what we need, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, th- the way that the um, the knowledge, you know, or at least the insight, I'll say, came to me personally was when we began to develop interdisciplinary um, care for patients, and so. Mm-hmm. The American healthcare system is a mostly a consultative system where you're lucky to get an appointment with your doc or with any of your healthcare professionals. You're lucky to get parking and the appointment together yeah. on the same day <laughs> yeah. and within a reasonable amount of time. And so uh, if you're able to offer multidisciplinary services where you can see multiple disciplines, maybe not even on the same day, and those disciplines can communicate with each other uh, at least by letter or by talking to each other that's a step where you begin to bridge that barrier that gap of understanding what the different therapists do what a physical occupational speech or swallow therapist does cuz you're starting to 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 actually get interaction the highest level of care that we can offer in in our system is um, is interdisciplinary care that's where everybody sees the patient on the same day and then you sit yeah. down and you talk about it together mm-hmm. and I always tell patients the best level of care that you can um, hope for is lots of people talking behind your back that's the highest that. level of that. care okay and so that's the care that's missing in most yeah. of the healthcare system once we set that care up that's when I began to understand what a speech and language is uh, a pathologist and swallowing expert does mm-hmm. by then maintaining that relationship and they understand the disabilities, what we're dealing with, they start to bring the historical points to the attention that make me a sharper clinician mm-hmm. at the bedside, make me ask the right questions, teach the students the right answers. and But the full appreciation for the different... Um, professionals on a healthcare team didn't come to me in a dream. Yeah. <laughs> they came to me um, as a uh, maybe a, it hit me in the back of the head as we began to do true interdisciplinary care and conferences mm-hmm. and then we can appreciate the expertise that people come and and then focus ourselves and, and improve. and so I think that's the, the best future we can hope for in, in healthcare is to get to that interdisciplinary level. Uh, and you know, as you've intimated, it's important for us to get this into the curriculums earlier yeah. and earlier Period. often. Let's and, just get it in uh, there. And, Absolutely. you know, when we send patients for these different studies, you know, all of the therapists will tell us that one of the major problems we have is we we tend to send them when there's a problem mm-hmm. uh, rather than preventatively. And so almost... Every speech language pathologist that does swallowing study would rather see the patient who is at risk but not in trouble yet than the patient who's already in trouble or down the road. Not a knee jerk uh,
2: reaction to something. And
1: we tend to use our speech language and swallowing uh, professionals in the American healthcare system once we're down the road. Morticians. We might have gone (laughs) too late, too far. So. I think what's
2: interesting is that. When we talk about knowledge of swallowing, we're asking neurology, what is their training? We're asking speech pathologists, what is their training? And I feel like where we're not bridging the gap is that as speech pathologists in training, we're trained a lot on signs and symptoms of swallowing, the consequences of swallowing, um, you know, how to find red flags, but we're not trained on how does swallowing work, the neurology of swallowing? Mm-hmm. What's a central pattern generator? How does the stem control swallowing? Mm-hmm. How does the cortex control swallowing? On the flip side, we have the neurology team where they have years of training in just how these sensory motor um, you know, pathways function, but they're not trained on what are the signs and symptoms, how do we recognize it? And we have two groups of people that are being trained in two very different domains, that if we could just come together and understand it.
0: So you think that they are getting training on how the brain controls swallowing?
2: I think that they have a solid understanding of neural pathways.
0: Neurologists, they understand the brain very well. They understand it especially for things that they actually, I mean, look at, they understand how the brain controls the eyes, and they know how to use a flashlight to get them to look left and right. <laughs> so they're doing this. They're comparing. They're bringing together the signs and symptoms as well as what right. they think it means when someone has a saccade or of like or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but nobody is talking. Nobody understands swallowing really well. Mm-hmm. He said it. The first thing he said was our understanding is low, but the significance is high. yeah. And I think that's one thing that no matter what your training is, Mm -hmm. even people on the street who you meet, who you tell, um, I do swallowing or whatever it is that you do, Mm -hmm. they're like, oh, my God, that's so important. As they carefully grab their neck and make sure it's still there, right? With (laughs) fear in their eyes. like I didn't know that was a problem. They're immediately, like, listening, like, what do you mean people can't swallow? Like, it's up there with breathing, right? Right. Um, so it's obvious to people the problem is everybody understands the significance and the amount that we understand relative significance is 100 what we understand is five percent yeah
1: that's that's a
0: big big problem so i'm really i'm really happy that he was willing to say hey look our community is not so not so hot on this
2: yeah absolutely No, it just made me think about, in terms of the interdisciplinary aspect of our job and advocacy. I remember, you know, coming out of grad school having one class in swallowing, and we live in a healthcare system that's very focused on specialization. So when I started at Hopkins as a clinical fellow, and in my first year I was a swallowing specialist. That was my, that's how I was marked. And um, you know, I think as speech pathologists, it's tough because we get that one course, but now all of a sudden we're you know, marked as these specialists to know everything that there is to know about swallowing. And you have a choice as a speech pathologist to dig on your own and really understand the neurology of swallowing and understand really how the system works. Um, And I think the best way to really spread that information is, one of the breakthroughs I had working clinically was, you know, going to work, an hour early and being able to round with the teams as they rounded on the patients to just those five minutes to chime in on your patients to explain hey this is why this person you know is having trouble swallowing this is the physiology this is relating it to what's happening neurologically or what's happening from a metabolic standpoint or whatever is happening in their you know with their body and whatever crisis that they're in and I think generating that respect for what we do and how we understand swallowing you know for speech pathologists, I think that's one of the best things that you can do to just get those little bites in there to, no pun intended, to, um, to really help people understand that swallowing isn't just a pass-fail exam, it's not black and white, that it's, it's gray. I'm glad you said that, because what, what I tried to do when I did the stroke talk um,
0: to primarily doctors, some radiologists and nurses, was I would do a, I said, let's play a game called would we be okay with? I would translate everything we do in swallowing that we're okay with to stuff in walking. So I would give analogies like, would we be okay with this example? A patient is bedridden and cannot leave their room, but a PT is expected to assess fall risk. However, the PT does not have access to the patient's room. So the PT listens from the hallway for sounds of falling when the patient first attempts to transition from bed to chair would we be okay with this? No. The correlate, speech pathologists don't have access to video fluoroscopy or fees, but they're expected to assess swallowing safety at the bedside. They can't get in the room with the swallow, quote unquote, so they have to listen for sounds or signs and symptoms or sounds of swallowing. We're totally okay with the cough, but we're not okay with the thud sound indicating that they didn't do well and actually fell. Obviously, walking into somebody's room is not the same thing as video fluoroscopy. But I would argue that patients bounce back and are readmitted for aspiration pneumonia just like falls. So the barriers are really completely made by us. And what often physicians don't know is that, one, there's a barrier that we have to ask you for an order, right? There's also a barrier that even if we get the order, if we see 10 new patients a day, we know that maybe, maybe four of them will get to fluoro. But we would not be okay with if 40 new admits came with a stroke, but only four of them could actually get a CT or an MRI, and you had to resort to phrenology for the rest, which is what we do. We do swallowing phrenology. We just feel for bumps on the neck. We're not okay with one, but we're okay with the other. And when you put those two together, you're like, this is bizarre.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the logic of the argument, you know, makes perfect sense in the translation in practice, in large-scale medical practices sometimes. Uh, you know, laughable and, and can reach levels of ridiculousness that, um, that, that, that are, are a bit crazy. I think the American healthcare system is starting to appreciate the fact that um, the doctors shouldn't be the sun and the, the, the everybody else shouldn't be these planets that revolve around the doctors, that the philosophy should be the patients the sun and we should revolve around the patient. I That's also a great think,
0: idea. Oh yeah, I, mean, I like also, that.
1: I think that um, that the the idea that doctors are the only ones that can write prescriptions or orders is starting to go away. It's oh, really? slow. I mean, there's different lobbies and things on this, but uh, but clearly the most qualified person to to call for a a a, a swallow study is a swallow specialist. Right. The least qualified is the uh, MD who has had absolutely zero <laughs> training. So whatever training you get in speech and swallow um you know pathophysiology and therapy i can guarantee you that less is given to each md and so
0: it's just access right i mean if you if you say we can do 10 there's only slots for two
2: <laughs> you know there's right. that's a radiology issue right. not really right. you know. yeah well i think that we limit ourselves to speech pathologists sometimes where if we have 10 patients and this happens all the time where we have a large caseload we have a lot of patients to see and we know, say we have ten patients that we know are going to need an instrumental evaluation that need fluoro, for example, and we know we're, oh, we're probably only going to get three patients that can go to radiology today, so I'll just make do with those other seven patients and just give the best recommendation that I can at the bedside instead of advocating that, well, no, these ten patients need fluoro for me to make an evaluation for me to you know make a um, diagnosis. Well this
1: is the benefit of sort of an interdisciplinary system. You certainly don't want to overuse or overutilize resources, but I'll tell you I, I have um, really learned over the years by talking to all of the different people on the healthcare team that we work with in these interdisciplinary circles. I've been very careful from the beginning to say, well we don't want to order this for everyone, we don't want to overutilize resources. Mm-hmm. And year after year, consistently, the answer that I get is we still under refer mm-hmm. and and part of it is is because the specialist really is keyed in on wanting to get to the problem before they get down the road yeah and and yeah. the doctors you know I, and you know i 'll um, you know maybe criticize our own profession a little bit. We're a lot of times we're the down the road. You know, like <laughs> if you get to us, they're already down the road, yeah. right? So as and the we're patient seeing patient
0: is the can that we're kicking, right? right?
1: So as we're seeing patients in the clinic, I I think that the other answer is is we've really gotta get gerontologists on board oh, yeah. with this and we've gotta get our primary care physicians on board with this and yep. people attuned to the risk factors and who's at risk and who should be getting Um, you know, checked out, and certainly certain diseases, like Parkinson's disease, for example, where the leading cause of death is aspiration pneumonia, early on in that disease, we should be screening these patients and frequently checking in with them, And, uh, and we can do a lot when we do that if you wait until they get down the road, get kicked down the road a while, yeah. then the patient's going to be in trouble and you may not be able to save the patient. And, and the frustrating part is it's so obvious. Yeah. You know, know. Like it's hidden in plain sight. You know. But I
2: think, you know, a real pioneer in, in that mentality is the head and neck cancer population where before patients even have a swallowing issue, before they start chemo radiation, they're in swallowing therapy, getting active prophylactic swallowing therapy to help you know, combat these issues before they become issues. Yep. Right. And Wherever
0: possible, yeah. I think it's good. The thing is, by the time they've had a diagnosis of Parkinson's, certainly stroke, I mean, they come in and they're the worst they're going to be, and hopefully they're spontaneous recovery and they get better. Mm-hmm. The other populations can generally get worse, right? right? Yeah. But to, to your point,
2: mm-hmm. whenever you
0: can get in there before, but we can't, we're just trying to get in there when they're worse. You know what I mean? Like, I can we just see it when it's really bad, a stroke yeah. especially? Well, last question, since... Uh, I know you got to run, is how do you think speech pathologists could better advocate, not speech pathologists necessarily, but specifically swallowing clinicians, can better advocate for their patients who have swallowing disorders to the healthcare system, to um, other medical professionals who sometimes don't realize that they might be acting as a barrier because they're just not aware of what's happening?
1: So you know i I think that you have to be strategic about how you fight the battle and I think it's it's always fun to to you know play a pundit and and criticize the system but um, mm-hmm. but in a sense you have to um, really decide how you want to fight the battle mm-hmm. and my own personal bias in fighting that type of battle would be to use the power of the pen and uh, and to do the Outcomes research and to publish the studies and to do them and choose the outcome variables that are going to be compelling to the American healthcare system or to other healthcare systems across the world because certainly it's not a problem that's unique to the United States. But to think about morbidity, mortality, and nursing home placement, which are the three things that Medicare uh, certainly pays attention to, and so having that discussion and thinking through that is where I've made some mistakes in my own career and thinking about why why are these great findings that we have not translatable. It's because, you know, we wrote them in Japanese and they were looking for <laughs> them in Swahili. Yeah. You know, and so we, we just missed the boat. So if you can actually figure out or, or make some educated guesses with people within the the systems that are working on these problems as to... So, what are the factors that are going to move the system mm-hmm. and design so like around those factors? Money,
0: readmissions, um, cost to yeah. the patients by mm-hmm. not identifying a problem.
1: Hospitalizations, mm-hmm. you know, money like saved save. across the systems. Okay. You know, falls, fractures, aspiration—all big problems. Mm-hmm. All cost Medicare, Medicaid, and the American taxpayer billions—not mm-hmm. millions, but billions of dollars mm-hmm. per year—and morbidity, mortality, nursing home placement, three mm-hmm. features that are of keen interest. Um, those are, are, you know, the loaded questions, and certainly I would think that um, the bright next generation of speech-language pathologists who are going to focus on swallowing could choose some of these things and easily show their impact and show their value and do it in a unit that people can understand. And that's how you'll change the system mm-hmm. by having good papers that are translatable, good data that's compelling. And, um, and then, you know, like Booker T. Washington, you gotta go out there and tell your story. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and like that. if you're gonna, you know, build something that's not there, you gotta learn how to tell your story and mm-hmm. tell it in a compelling way right. and uh, not sell it. I mean, you know, selling is different, but just tell your story. And um, there's a story here. So.
0: Great. Absolutely. Thanks. Really appreciate your time. It's a pleasure. So what one thing that he didn't give us because he is a big picture chair yeah. of neurology, which I appreciate, but, and it's certainly good information that we will need to use, um, is what can each individual speech-language pathologist do? hmm to advocate for his or her patients wherever they are. It could be home health care, it could be acute care. Um, I think the big problem that speech pathologists complain about that's unique to us and not to all medical professionals. Everyone's pressed for time. Everybody wishes they had more training. Everybody wishes they had more time to interact with other colleagues. The two things that I think we're missing are, one is imaging. We need to see the swallow. It's why the example with the PT outside the room resonates so much because it's just so ridiculous in that setting and not in ours.
2: Well, and the tools to be able to analyze the imaging. You know, to not watch a swallow study in a minute and a half and make a diagnosis right there on the spot. Right. But to be able to have the tools to record swallow studies. I talked to a lot of speech pathologists that just flat out say, we just don't have the ability to record studies at my facility. Um, You know, I've seen um, speech pathologists who pull out their iPhone to record a swallow study that's playing on a screen on their iPhone because that's their only way to be able to go back and watch it.
0: Right. So um, in the talk I gave, I have the slide with... um, someone in radiology just you know those dark rooms and they're just staring at all these screens right Mm -hmm. and the point i'm trying to make is that there's a reason why they have those dark caves where the radiologists are sitting there just pouring over these images frame by frame Mm -hmm. or slice by slice in their world of like the abdomen or something and it's because they're going to make a critical decision and that is a person on the other end of that screen absolutely. Um, and they understand what it means to say it's um, spread to the lungs or it hasn't spread to the lungs whatever it is they're looking at right mm-hmm. so in the same way uh, we need to be able to using th- be using this as an analogy to say how to any maybe if it maybe let's say it's radiology that you're dealing with let's say you have access to fluoro but what you don't have is time to review it one they won't record it or two, they'll record it, but there's no way to play it back um, Mm -hmm. if you're not in radiology or something like that. They only want to do seven frames a second. Those kinds of barriers. So it's almost like there's ineffective access.
2: You're there, but not quite, right? Yep, exactly. But to go back to something you said earlier is that you need imaging in the first place. Right,
0: sure. So the first thing is, is, and it's not just about radiology. So that's uh, the other point that I like to make is, there was probably a point where people thought, yeah, when pigs fly, SLPs are going to do fees. Mm -hmm. And in fact, ENTs, there was a point where they uh, threatened to sort of take it back, or I think they actually did.
2: Do you remember the story there? No, I don't know what the story is. I know it went back and forth a few times. Right.
0: But there was a point, well, see, part of the issue is physicians aren't trained to stand there and be a technician for a speech pathologist. And in certain states where a radiology tech is not the standard, like in Maryland, They don't have techs. They have the radiologists. But then the radiologist is, if this person is not a naturally engaged physician who's just really interested in what's happening, then what often happens is that that person is acting like a tech. It's floor on, floor off, right? Yep. And they're trained for much better things. It's sort of like if we were feeding people and that's all we did. We just fed. (laughs) No, no, don't. Don't get into the swallow. I don't care what you saw. Just put the applesauce in their mouth. We'd be like, I am a speech-language pathologist. (laughs) And I have had two years of... I mean, there would be snaps in a circle, and a Z formation. Like, we'd be like telling people no. Or like when people say speech teacher, we are quick to tell them that no, we're more than that. So there you take a physician who doesn't want to just press the pedal for us. And of course, they're just like, this is annoying, it's boring. And there's a time where we thought fees probably would never be... Passed to a speech pathologist for him or her to do, there's no reason why we can't press our own pedal for a C-arm. There's no reason why not. If you give us the guidelines the way they gave us the guidelines with fees, there's no reason why we can't, you say we have five minutes, why can't we, it's not like my toes are going to emit more floral radiation (laughs) than if the radiologist hit the pedal. In fact, I might actually capture what I want to see more easily.
2: And you're actually using more flora time and trying Explaining to correct those. exactly, those, um...
0: exactly. So all of those are, these were all scenarios that are, that can be overcome. It's a matter of getting the message across in a succinct way, right? Yep. And it's about whether or not speech pathologists are sort of I don't want to say fed up enough because if a if a revolution happens and it's a revolt and they're pitchforks they're all going to point to this podcast right? Um, well, let's
2: yeah I'm okay would, with that, that yeah I that actually wouldn't be so bad I'm okay with that I'm
0: okay with that I really do think that there needs to we need to be of one mind on this and you can't have yeah. this in a setting where SLPs are at each other's throats right? Mm-hmm. Some people want to step forward some people don't some people think well let's do it this way. Mm-hmm. If there's one thing you agree on and everybody thinks, yes, we need this, that's the first step. Yeah. And then the plan is for everyone to have a strategy of how you're going to move forward.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's just too bad that so many speech pathologists out there practicing are really on their own Island. Yeah. And they're practicing in facilities and they don't get to have these conversations and band together and advocate for themselves and, um, you know, even just knowing that other people are having these same frustrations and these battles mm-hmm. that other people are having. But, you know, I think there's a a big... It's just something we're not talking about enough, I think, in
0: our field. We're we're doing a whole hell of a lot of complaining. I mean, what, our first three podcasts had some kind of complaint? (laughs) Well, we are. Well, Well, you know, this (laughs) comes from, I mean, look at. I posted, uh, every time I post something on any of the Facebook groups or anywhere else, there's somebody complaining about SLPs not doing something right. How many times have you seen this? People don't know what we do. We do so much. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. But the point is, we... We do a lot. Mm-hmm. But even if all you do is swallowing, that in and of itself is something that is um, foreign to a lot of people. So, what are some specific solutions that speech pathologists can actually implement? I would maybe we could parse them into those who have zero access to any kind of imaging
2: yep.
0: versus those who have limited access to imaging. Okay, so those with zero access, the first thing that comes to mind is stuff we've talked about before, yep. which is stop
2: saying you can see stuff that you can't. Right, well, and I think, like you said, part of it is you know being really upfront about what we know and what we don't know. If you're gonna make specific comments about laryngeal
0: movement, and you didn't see it, why would they give you the imaging? Right. Like, if you think you're as good as x-ray, they're not going to pay for it.
2: As I remember practicing, when I would request a fluoro or an order for a fluoro for imaging, you know, all the a lot of times the physician would say, well, why can't you just do a bedside?
0: Mm-hmm. And they didn't
2: understand the differences and didn't understand the limitations of the mm-hmm. bedside evaluation until they were properly educated. Right. Um, so that... Does that mean that the next thing is education? I think so. I hear a lot of talk about, you know, speech pathologists who, you know, every time that they take their patient down the floor, it just perfectly matches what they... What they suspected. ...at the bedside. And I think we have to be careful about those grand remarks that we make because it creates a... Um, you know, an assumption that we can do more at the bedside than what we actually can. Yeah.
0: But so that's, so among those people who believe that there's something to be learned by imaging, right? (laughs) right? Um, Education, in my view, is a big deal. And the reason is that there is a way to educate people so that they get what they need to know in a reasonable amount of time. Mm-hmm. These um, other health professionals and administrators don't want to sit down for an hour long lecture on how the swallow works. Right. They don't give a rat's ass. Mm-hmm. So I think that the best thing to do is to go in with the way Dr. Oaken was mentioning, what do they care about? Do they care about readmissions? Get readmissions data. Do they care about who's dying of what? So he deals with folks with neurodegeneration. If they ultimately die of aspiration ammonia, that's a significant piece that we need to know. And as I yeah. said, getting in early is key. If you can't get in early, why is that? Is it because this? Part, if you can show them that 30% of our patients were at that critical period, but all that, that particular 30% could not get an appointment for three months, yeah, that is data that they can use. You can at least parlay that into money and say, we could actually be making 30% more than we are. Right, and yeah buying an extra C-arm and, buy, and hiring a radiology tech or whoever it would be, actually gets paid for in a month. Yep. If you can show that kind of information, and that's generally stuff at your fingertips, that's asking around, that's just doing the legwork to yep. show we're losing money. So if they speak in dollar signs, speak their language. Yep. If they speak in length of stay, speak their language. If they speak in readmission, speak their language. Right. So those are
2: for the people and, who don't have access. Well, and you consider, you know, the readmission. A lot of times hospitals, when patients get readmitted within 30 days, the hospital has to eat that cost. Yep. So yep. that's not even factored into those numbers mm-hmm. and thinking about it and that way. And if they way. get
0: readmitted for codes like
2: dehydration, malnutrition, aspiration, pneumonia, that's on us. Well, I loved what Dr. Oaken said when he talked about the power of the pen. And I think that we have way more power in our documentation than oh, what we're good utilizing. Point. Good point. And, you know... I remember when we were backed up in fluoro and our patients couldn't get fluoros in a timely manner, I documented the crap out of that. Mm -hmm. And it was Mm -hmm. like, you know, unable to um, provide objective analysis of swallowing function due to inability to perform objective evaluation in fluoroscopy. Mm -hmm. And when people read that over and over and over and over, it's like, whoa, what is going on here? Like, Mm -hmm. I keep reading in this documentation that... Hey, I, I can't make a diagnosis. I can't comment on physiology because I don't have access. So, right. well, I think about you know what sounds more powerful if we take it outside to a neurologist and you're seeing a patient and you say, um, say for whatever reason they didn't have access to an MRI, patient has a suspected stroke and you say unable to rule out stroke due to inability to have access to MRI. <laughs> Boom. I mean, that's just it is what it is. Versus, well, the patient has left sided weakness, therefore. Um, likely patient has stroke in right MCA distribution, and you go on and on and on, and that doesn't carry as much weight and power. Right. One, you still don't know. Yeah. But you're saying all these. Oh well, it's suspected, and based on this that I saw, we we think it may be this. So mm-hmm. we're gonna we're gonna try some treatment to see how that works. It's very fluffy to mm-hmm. me versus. You know, just saying exactly what you know and what you do not know.
0: Do you think that that requires a level of confidence that some people don't have? I mean, some. I mean, what's the likelihood that somebody's going to say they don't know? I was just listening to something on NPR, mm-hmm. and it was about the hardest thing for humans to say is, I don't know. Yeah. They will make stuff up. They'll say, suspected this, because they want to show some knowledge. I think there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't know. Just like... There's nothing wrong with the with hearing a loud noise upstairs and saying what you don't know what fell was it a right. person was it a chest of drawers was it a cat like I don't know it was a I've
2: been listening to ceiling sounds for twenty <laughs> <Yeah>. years <laughs> According and to I the, know yes. a lamp when it falls <laughs> exactly <laughs> I'll never forget a resident said to me once uh, I saw it was seeing a patient at the bedside and the patient needed an instrumental evaluation I'd recommended the NPO. And the resident said to me, he said, well, what are you going to do for treatment? Because it's Friday and their patient's not going to get a fluoro until Monday because they don't do it on the weekends. So what are you going to do for treatment? And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to treat yet. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know what the physiology is. I don't know what's going on in the swallow. And he looked at me right in the eyes and he, you know, with like disappointment because the other (laughs) SLP that normally covers would be able to make that recommendation. Mm. So I
0: think it's tough too when huh. you're like So it's like it's one of those <laughs> things where you you're being set up by the people before you. Of
2: course. But you don't want to also like out your fellow colleagues. Do
0: you not want to out your fellow colleagues or just by virtue of saying our scope of practice dictates this? This is, this, is very, this is where I get very, very clear mm-hmm. that it's either we keep going down the road, that people are dragging us, which we clearly aren't happy with. Otherwise, there wouldn't be all of these yeah. complaints about not mm-hmm. getting enough swallowing. I don't know any speech pathologist, unless they're in the school system, who's saying, I just got way too much swallowing in my, in my um, training. I knew too much about what I was doing when I walked into that doggone hospital. Yeah. It's the opposite. Right. So I am more than happy to say, give them an analogy in their world.
2: Oh yeah. And so if you have a
0: rehab director who's an OT and you, I would say, well, if you were doing therapy in the dark and the patient was knocking stuff off the table and you had to listen to the sound of things falling, like was it a water bottle or was it an iPhone, would that be good for you? Could you do a treatment about adaptive equipment based on that? What's that? You can't? That's what I thought. Yeah. Now, obviously, I'm that kind of girl, right? (laughs) But you can sweetly say... I have not seen the mechanism. If I don't open the hood of the car, I can't tell you if it's the carburetor or something else.
2: Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right
0: us do you guys have stories of advocacy failed advocacy stalled advocacy successful advocacy we want to know what you've been up to is there anything that we haven't addressed yet that you think is critical to the conversation comment let us know reach out to us and don't give up the fight tell me heaven is on the I
2: know you don't know what life